Good morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Holy Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are our Creator and your design is perfect. Your purposes are perfect. And we thank you that uh, we have the privilege to look into your word and to see exactly what you intend for us, how we should live, and we get to look into your word and see how gracious you've been in the midst of all of our sin and our failing. And we get to look into your word and see that there is a final outcome at resurrection when all things will be made new and we will rejoice on the earth with you forever. Speak to us today from your word, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I really have one point today, simple, and uh, we'll work our way to it, but I'm going to state it right up front, and that is this, you are a temple vessel, and God has designed you, and he has made you to use you. After all, that's what you do with a vessel. You get a drinking cup, you pour water into it, and you drink out of it. You get a plate, you put food on it, a vessel, and you eat from it. And so God has designed each person as one of his vessels. When we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28, we find ourselves in the midst of redemptive history. And uh, it's only the midst because now we've come down to our days and redemption has been finished, although we wait the final resurrection of the body. If you think of God's dwelling with us, with mankind, it starts in the Garden of Eden. And so we had a garden sanctuary. A sanctuary, of course, comes from the word holy. It was a holy place. Why? Because God showed up there. When God comes, where he is is holy and is holy ground. Even in that sense, today he promises to meet with us. So we are here in a room that is just a room, but it's holy right now because God is with us and he's talking to us. Sometimes we think, well, we're just here for a lecture or a sermon or something. When we forget, wait, wait, wait. No, this is all about God. God is here to give to us. He comes today, and this room is holy right now. He comes to give us his holy word. In the garden sanctuary, God showed up after a six-day creation, which on the first day he said, let there be light. On the fourth day, he created the lights in the heavens, the sun to rule by day, the moon to rule by night, and the stars. And then on the seventh day, after looking over his creation and saying, it is very good, he showed up on the seventh day, on the rest day, to meet with man. 
But of course, man had already sinned. And so the seventh day became an inspection day. And on the seventh day, God judged the serpent. He judged the woman and he judged the man. And the final outcome of that judgment was Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden that was the holy place where God was. That garden sanctuary is gone. We don't know how long it existed. It probably existed to the point of the flood so that Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices not into the garden because they couldn't go in there, but to the gate where the cherubim had flaming swords turning every direction to keep people out. And there they brought their sacrifices and presented them before God, but they could not go in and be with God. Then God destroyed the world, and he saved Noah and Noah's family by water in an ark and brought them into a new world. And in the new world, he started a redemptive program through the person of Abraham. And from Abraham came Isaac and Jacob, and out of Jacob came the 12 sons that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. They went down into Egypt where they were in captivity for a long time. And Pharaoh turned against them and enslaved them and made their lives hard. And they cried out to the Lord and he looked down and he remembered them. And so he chose a man named Moses to bring them out and he redeemed them out of slavery they crossed the Red Sea and met with God at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God showed up. And it was holy ground. And there was lightning and thunder and an earthquake and noise and a sound of a trumpet. And God spoke audibly ten words, the Ten Commandments. And the people trembled and were afraid. Even Moses, according to the author of the Hebrews, said, I exceedingly tremble in fear. And out of that meeting, there came a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, God came to dwell with his people. And you know what the tabernacle is. It has basically two rooms inside the tent. There's a porchway outside, but inside the tent, two rooms and in the first room, which no one could go into but the priest, once you came to the doorway of the tabernacle, if somebody opened the curtain, you might get a peek in. But as just regular people like us, you wouldn't see. But in there, you knew there was a lampstand. And the lampstand gave light in that room. And the lampstand faced the table of showbread, which had 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was a heavenly picture. On the one hand, it was a picture of God watching over his people. But on the other hand, it was a picture of the priests watching over God's people in God's place. But this lampstand had seven lamps on it representing the seven planets that one could look up into the heavens and see, the sun and the moon and five planets that you can see. 
because God created the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night and the stars to shine at nighttime. So here's this lampstand representing God's creation. So when you go into the first room, it's like going into the heavens you can see, but then there's this blue veil that represents the waters above because when God created, he separated the waters below from the waters above and heaven is above those waters and you can't go in there. No one can go in there except the high priest once a year and just for a little bit of time. And when you pass through that veil, you enter by a picture, symbolically, into God's heavens where he is enthroned. There's no lights in there. There's an ark that has a golden covering that has two cherubim on each end of it with their wings outstretched, and God is enthroned in that room on the wings of the cherubim. And that tent was a movable tent. It moved all around for 40 years in the wilderness, and then finally it came into the promised land. And it moved around until, as we saw, as we've seen in Chronicles, David separated the holy room from the holiest of holies. And he brought the holiest of holies to Zion. And there the Ark of the Covenant was, but back uh, in Gibeon was the, was the other part of the tent with the altar where all the sacrifices took place. And this was a transition in Chronicles, a transition that included uh, a... a, a liturgical revolution of music. Something new is happening. And it's going to become a part of God's new creation, whereby he settles down, he comes to rest in Jerusalem, in the temple that we've been talking about, that Solomon is going to build. And Solomon builds this temple, and here in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 is a plan in the plan has all these words and when you read them you probably don't think much about them about all the upper rooms the inner room the room for the sanctuary for the mercy seat the storage rooms the storage room for the dedicated things then you read about utensils of gold and the weight of the gold for each utensil for its service and the silver utensils and the weight of silver for each utensil and then the gold for the lampstand and the gold for the lamp on the lampstand and the weight of each lampstand according to its use. And then silver lamp, silver lampstands? Where'd they come from? Silver lampstands with silver lamps on them by the weight of the silver for each lampstand. And then gold tables for the showbread with the weight of the gold for each table. And silver tables for the use of each table by the weight of the table. And then forks and shovels and bowls all of that's there why so solomon is tasked with building this temple and he builds it he builds it and if you would if you're not at first chronicles turn to first chronicles chapter 28 Notice what 
David is speaking in verses 1 through 7. And David is talking to all the officials and he's telling them that he had intended to build this permanent structure for the Ark of the Covenant and for the footstool of our God. But God said no to him. Even though God had chosen him out of all the Israel, he chose the the tribe of Judah, then he chose, chose the family of David's family, and then he chose David to be king. But he said, no, you're a man of war. You shed blood. No, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Solomon. And he's going to build a house for me. And he's going to be my son, and I'm going to be his father. Now think about that. What does that make you think of? Well, it goes back to creation. And the Father and the Son build. Now, God the Father takes a son of man and he builds again. Now he's building a permanent structure on the earth. And he says in verse 7, And I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. Well, so now the law, the Torah is broken into two parts, commandments and ordinances. Commandments is this is what you do, and ordinances, this is the judgment you get if you don't do it. So King Solomon has got to keep the commandments, get the people to keep the commandments, and the people break the commandments, he's got to judge. And if Solomon does this, then his kingdom will be established forever. Well, you know, Solomon didn't do that. Solomon built this huge, fantastic temple. The holy room of the tabernacle was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. The holy room of the temples, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. I should have said the holiest of holies. The holy room in the tabernacle has over here one lampstand. Over here, one table. The holy room of this temple that Solomon is building has ten lampstands over here made of gold and ten tables over here for showbread. And when you come out into the courtyard, there are silver lampstands and silver tables. That was never, 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 never at the tabernacle. And of course, with all this gold and light shining, it's all shiny and bright in that room. Solomon built it. And he dedicated it. And God appeared to him again and made promises to him again. And then what did he do? Then he went and married foreign women and he built temples for them and he was lured away by their gods and the kingdom was torn in two. Eventually, the kingdom, both southern and northern, proved to be unfaithful as Chronicles is leading us to at the end of 2 Chronicles. And so this structure, which was to be permanent, was torn down, just as God said. 
If you serve me, I'll establish you. If you forsake me, I will reject you forever. Then there was a rebuilt temple after the exile when they came back. And it was a small nothing temple. And people cried because it was nothing in comparison to that magnificent structure that Solomon had built. But over the years, this morphed into, if we could put it this way, this post-exilic temple into the Herodian temple, which was a long time in building and was just completed before it was finally destroyed. Then what? Then comes a temple. Not a physical structure, but a human structure. And that temple is what we are. Now, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that each of our bodies is a temple of the Spirit, and that's a true statement. But when we talk about the church being a temple, where you can see and one assembly as a temple, for sure, but you have to think of the whole church as the temple. So this temple now sits all around the world in hundreds of thousands of churches. This is the temple. So when we think about the Solomonic temple and its growth in light, when we go all the way back to creation, we realize that growth in light is nothing compared to what happened at creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then this temple, this uh, temple that you and I are part of, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. This kind of light, he says, nobody puts it out there to cover it up, but they set it up on a hill so people can see it. Of course, in Matthew 5, where it's talking that way, it's talking about Jerusalem, which was set on a hill, and there was a temple, and the lights in the Solomonic temple, and then finally the Herodian temple. There's all these lights. You could see them at night. It shined all around. But those temples have all been destroyed. The physical temples are gone. In my estimation, there will never be a physical temple again. Oh, one may be built, but it's not a temple that's going to be in God's plan because God was working towards where we are, a people temple. Now, you take a lampstand and you put it over here, either in the tabernacle or the Solomonic temple or the post-exilic temple, and you, you have a little bowl and you put oil in it and you light it with a wick. There's a wick and it burns. And that oil, going all the way back to Exodus, no one is allowed to make oil like that. You cannot use that oil anywhere. It's only for the holy place. Why? Because it's a picture of what lights someone up. And what lights someone up is what? The Holy Spirit, who's compared to oil. So on the day of Pentecost... 
a temple was created. When the apostles were lit up with fire like cloven tongues to signify to us a new temple has come. So when you look all the way back to the tabernacle and you look forward to the Solomonic temple and then you look to the post-exilic temple, all of those temples are looking forward to the day that you and I live in. That is a people temple. And the people in this temple, well, it's described in different ways in the New Testament, isn't it? So, in Ephesians chapter 2, we are built together with the saints. The saints were the Jewish people, and Gentiles are built together with them in a house where God is selecting out stones, and he's building up this house, and in this house, the Spirit lives. Oh, yeah, oil in the house, lighting it up. So Ephesians 2 tells us this is a dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2, this temple is described as Jesus being a living stone, and we are living stones being built up, and inside this temple, sacrifices are being offered that are acceptable to God. It's a temple. And so, as we'll see, we won't see it till Second Chronicles, the language that's used of building the temple, it has, it has words like shoulders, navels, because the whole temple, the whole structure, not to mention all the utensils of gold and silver, are all pictures of a people temple. In addition to this, you add the Song of Solomon. And if you read Song of Solomon properly, you discover that the language in Song of Solomon, even though it's talking about a man and a woman, is temple language. It's the picture of a man coming to dwell with his wife, all using pictures of the temple. Why? Because the temple is a picture of a human and what happens? God comes to live in the human. Well, that's God's people. So the whole Old Testament is moving towards what we live in today, a people temple. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some, for, some to honor and some to dishonor. In other words, the picture is, just of a house, but remember now, this kind of language is the language of the Old Testament. I'm going to build a house for my name. He's going to build a house for my name. So sometimes you'll see the word temple, sometimes you'll see the word house, because the temple is, is just a word for a house that's for a king. It's a kingly house. 
But it's a house. It's where God comes to live. And in any house, even today, you have you. Whoops. You have all kinds of you have all kinds of vessels, and uh, and you use when when guests come over. Sometimes you put out the good stuff, and uh, at other times you don't use the good stuff. Well, here this kind of language is talking about using vessels that are gold and silver. That's for honorable use. But then there's dirty work that has to be done in a house. And so you use the earthenware, the wood vessels for that. That's, that's what this is talking about. But it's talking about the people of God as a temple. And he goes on in verse 21. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, uh, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now just notice the language there. A vessel, a utensil in First Chronicles 28, for honor, sanctified. Oh, we're going to build a house for the sanctuary of God. Sanctified. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, things cleanses all back to temple language you go up you go up to the tabernacle of the temple you have to be clean you got to be cleansed before you can be there and worship god he's talking about a temple and he's saying that you and i are vessels and if we cleanse ourselves from these things now uh i don't think he means cleansing ourselves from the wooden and earthenware vessels I think he means in the whole section, we don't have time to talk about that, but in the whole section, he's talking about false teaching. Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying the resurrection is past, and you cleanse yourself from that. You cleanse yourself from false teaching. Then you'll be a vessel for honorable use, and you'll be sanctified and fit for the master's use, prepared for every good work. Now, when you use the word vessel, what is the problem? Well, the problem is this. A vessel is to be used. Nobody likes to be used. We live in a culture now that is infiltrating into the church, and we don't like the idea that, well, let me just show you. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. And look down at verse 7. You husbands, likewise, live, live with your wives in an understanding way. That is just absolutely a terrible translation. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life and so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, when it says husbands dwell with your wives, it, what it says in Greek is just according to knowledge. As with a weaker vessel, what it really says is grant her honor as a weaker vessel since she's a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers not, may not be hindered. But notice, it's a vessel. 
your wife, gentlemen, is a vessel. What do you do with the vessel? You use it. Now, nobody would like to say, well, I'm used by somebody. But that's what God says, because God made us to be used, to be used in his service, to be used by him. Now turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to uh, possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, maybe your margin has a different translation but it doesn't say possess your vessel. It says acquire a vessel. It's talking about a young man who uh, decides he's going to find a wife. He acquires a vessel. And there's a right way to acquire a vessel and there's a wrong way to acquire a vessel. And if you acquire a vessel in the wrong way, you are robbing from your brother and you will pay the consequences from God. That's what he's talking about. But just notice, once again, a woman is called a vessel. Now, mind you, men are called vessels too. Because think of Paul. Ananias hears from God. And he goes, he tells him to go meet Saul, the apostle Paul, who was going to become an apostle. And he says, I've heard of this man. He's going to Damascus and he's uh, putting people in jail. And Jesus says, Ananias, he is my chosen instrument. It's the same word, a vessel. He's my vessel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, Ananias, you go see him. I'm taking him and I'm going to use him for my sake. He's a vessel. All of that just to, to, to show us, look, we're vessels of God. And God designs the vessel. And back in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, you see that. It's, it's just, it's all through this little section of the blueprint where God is, or David is saying, well, he showed me. Turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And just notice, in verse 11, it says, Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan for the porch of the temple and all the rooms and so forth and all these vessels and lampstands and blah, 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 blah. And then you come down to verse 19, and it says, All this, said David, Yahweh made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, all the details of this pattern. So Moses went up in the mountain and he got a blueprint for the tabernacle. He didn't make it up. David didn't make this up. 
he got a blueprint from God. Look down, look back up in verse, uh, let's see, verse 12. And the plan of all that he had in mind, it's talking about David's plan here, but when it says he had in mind, the word mind is spirit. All the plan that he received from the spirit. So what I'm trying to show you is, okay, at creation, God had a plan. He made things just the way he wanted to make them. And when God went to build the tabernacle where he's going to live, he had a blueprint for his house. And Moses made it according to what God says. And Hebrews tells us that. And when God went to make a temple, this grander place with all the more light, a, a place that is going to spread its fame further than the tabernacle did. Because when you get... 10 lampstands and you get 10 tables, you get the number that represents totality. This is for the whole world. That's why Isaiah can call God's house a house of prayer for all the nations. Because when the temple was made, it was made for light to go everywhere. And God had a blueprint. So, God has a blueprint for everything in his temple, in his people temple. Each if you could say, well, you're a lampstand. He's got just the weight of gold or the weight of silver that you would be. If you're a table, just the weight of gold or just the weight of silver that you would be. If you're a utensil, like a fork or a shovel, just the weight of silver or bronze, whatever it may be. God designs it all and he makes it for his use. Back in Chronicles, look at verse... Uh, Look at verse 10. Well, let me read verse 9, then we'll read verse 10. Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 28. As for you, my son, Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. A whole heart, remember the word whole, is a word for Solomon, with a heart that's at peace. And a willing mind, the word willing doesn't mean, oh, yeah, yeah, it means delight in, with a mind that delights in what I'm doing. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you re forsake him, he will reject you forever. And then notice verse 10. Consider now. For Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and be doing it. Notice the word consider. The word consider is the word look. Look. So what David is saying, okay, I've spread out my blueprint before you that I got from God by inspiration through the Spirit. Here it is. This is... You, you, you see how much gold you need. You see how much silver you need. You see all the things you're supposed to do. Now look at it. Evaluate it. It's the same word that's used. And God saw, and it was good. And Solomon's supposed to say, look at this. This is good. This is delightful. And to delight in it. Okay. Now, why all the emphasis here? Because we live in a culture that does... I'm, now I'm talking about a church culture. We live in a church culture, not NBC, but the church at large now, 
that does not delight in what God does. So God has made a blueprint for we, His vessels, and the church at large is overthrowing it. We don't want it anymore. We want to upset the creation order. And just like Romans chapter 1 tells us, we don't want to honor God. We don't want to give Him thanks. We want to choose our own way. And that's exactly what we're doing right now in the church. And where does it show up? Well, it shows up first in what the church says. And then it shows up in what the church does. And where, where it's showing up today is in the family. So uh, I was, uh, I, I told John, I told some other people, I've been reading a book that's called, uh, called um, Manning Up. Man Up. How the rise of women has made men into boys. So what's happening in our culture uh, outside in the secular culture, and then it's happening inside in the church, is women are rising up, and women are becoming the leaders, the rulers. Women are getting more education. Women are starting to make more money. Women are deciding that they want to have a career until they're 30 or beyond, then have children. And what are the men doing? The men are playing video games like boys and just having a grand old time. Well, so that's what's out in our world. And uh, if you don't mind me saying that, that's partly what woke is all about. So everybody can get what they want. Nobody has to be responsible in the end. It's time for the church to man up. So Solomon's handed a blueprint, and we've been handed a blueprint. And the blueprint is how to live life. So what I'm asking you to compare is, look, what, what do you suppose would have happened to Solomon if he looked at that blueprint, and he said, oh, that's, that's too much effort. I don't, I don't like it. I mean, it took, it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. It took thousands and thousands and thousands of laborers to get this work done. That's why, that's why David can say, be courageous, be strong and courageous, don't be dismayed, because it's a big, hard job. He could have said, well, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to do it. What would God do? Yeah, right now, this is what the church is doing. The church is saying, uh, I don't think so. And it shows up in our family life. So, God made men and women, and they're both vessels. And God made the woman to be the helper of the man. And God made the woman for the man's sake, not the man for the woman's sake. And the man is the image and the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. But the church is not living that way anymore, or is beginning to shove it aside. And what I'm calling us to is to look at temple language, 
and decide that we are part of the temple and God made us for his use and so we better live like we're part of the temple, be a vessel that is cleansed from dishonorable things, sanctified, prepared, useful to the master for every good deed. That means we need to go back to our Bibles and we need to say, okay, what is the family? What is the church? And uh, give up the notion that over time, the family has changed and over time, the church has changed. So over here on the family side, right now, what's happening is men are staying at home and being Mr. Moms and women are going to work. Over here on the church side, what's happening is the elders of churches, are be, are, the women of churches are becoming elders and becoming pastors. And what's happening right here in the middle is all kinds of otherwise seemingly respectable men are teaching that is just what the Bible says. So I, I can't count how many people I love to read, and I, I get a lot of benefit from them in all kinds of scripture, but when it comes down to the role of men and women, they're just like the culture. And so that's what the church is becoming, and so our, our kids are running off like crazy from Christ into, oh, agnosticism, or atheists, they're becoming atheists. Why? Well, number one, we're not vessels cleansed from this way of thinking and fit, sanctified, fit for the master's use. That is what we have to become. What does that take? Well, it takes men and women who open the book and they look at what the book says and then they say, hmm, I'm wrong. I need to change. I need to repent. The problem with repentance is we don't like to be poked like that. Turn, if you would, back to, we're almost done here. Turn, if you would, back to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-three. Verse twenty-two, sorry. He, so he's speaking to Timothy about being uh, useful vessels. So he says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Faith, love, uh, love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, when he says, when he says, uh, give up youthful lusts, he's not talking about when we see the word lust, all we think of is sexual lust. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about what is intrinsic. Well, that kind of lust is intrinsic to youth. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about uh, how, uh, how youth can be strong-headed, stubborn, argumentative, uh, harsh, 
And, you know, we've all been through that, and, and hopefully we grow out of it. But then notice what he says. He says, but refuse foolish and ignorant uh, speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, uh, having, having been held captive by him. Notice, repentance is a gift. You open up the book, and you begin to read. And you see, you see what it says. Okay, here's what a husband ought to be. Here's what a father ought to be. Here's what a wife ought to be. Here's what a mother ought to be. And you look at it, and you're reading it, and you say, oh, no. and you, you, you know you fall short. And what do you do? You rationalize well, but what's Paul looking for? Repentance. Repentance. So I'm calling, and I have been calling, and I'm worried about this, extremely worried about it, that the church is drifting, drifting, drifting further and further away and the church is all worried about our culture of lost people, and they're just living out what lost people do. They're doing what's natural to them, and we're doing what's not natural to us, because what's natural is to follow Christ. And Christ was a vessel that God used to pay for our sin. And God is calling us to be vessels in his people temple that he can use, and he's got a blueprint about how we should live. We just need to know it, accept it, and turn from the ways we're not doing it. I have, a, I have a, an urge to get specific, but time is gone, so you might be fortunate there. Let's stand. Lord, we, I hope, I pray that we want to be light for the world. And light is, is something that people see clearly because there's light out there. They can see what's happening. And so we want our lives to be light. Not, not just giving knowledge by what we say, but almost even more importantly, giving knowledge of the truth by what we do so that people can look at us and look at our families and some will mock us and others will be convicted because they see what our families are like. You've given us such great gifts, God, in terms of marriage, husband and wife, and then blessing husband and wife with children. 
And these children are vessels for us to train for your use. And so I pray that you'd make us better at that and that we would want to lead our children in the way of the word and not in the way of the world so that indeed we might be light whereby people look and end up glorifying God in the day of visitation. We thank you for your word, even though sometimes we look at it and uh, we wonder, why, why is there so much detail here? And here, here it is, because you have detail for us in living. And we want to be the people who live it out. And Lord, I pray where McKinney Bible Church and its families have erred, that you would grant us repentance to change our mind and set a straight path and go your way so that uh, your church today, your temple today, might spread light all over the United States. This we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen.